Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Listen, we're going to get into Judges chapter 12 this morning, and this morning we are going to be covering one of the stories that many people... uh, Nobody really loves to touch because it's so messy, so hard in in some ways. Uh, But before we get into reading chapter 11 of Judges, I want us to read another chapter 11, and that's chapter 11 from the book of Hebrews. I want to just read a snippet of this before we get to our text. Hebrews 11.32 says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me if I did, <clears throat> if, to tell rather of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and of all the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. And the reason that I wanted to read these verses from Hebrews before we get to our text is that we are going to read about how Jephthah did indeed by faith become mighty in war and how he put armies to flight. But we are also going to read about how he sacrificed his own daughter as an offering to God. And as we approach Jephthah, we are to do so not, not with scoffing or with disgust, but with the recognition that God wanted it to be marked in the records of the New Testament that Jephthah did something great for him by faith. As we'll see, <clears throat> Jephthah has a very checkered past and commits some deeply troubling sins. And while it would be wrong to skip over those things or to downplay the horrific nature of his actions, it is equally wrong to look askance at what Hebrews tells us and to hold our own judgments over against the commendation from God himself in his word. When we read the scriptures, we must do so with the recognition that we are sinners, you, you, are very much like Jephthah. I am very much like Jephthah. We are sinners and we've been saved and washed and redeemed by the same blood, Jesus' blood for us. There is nothing in you or me that makes us better than this man, so we must be careful that our pride doesn't blind us to the lessons that we need to learn from our, this, this, this forerunner in faith. In disgust, we can... We can turn our head down and turn our eyes away. How could he do such a thing? And in doing that, we actually don't see the lesson that God is wanting us to see because our head is down and our eyes are turned. And so I'm encouraging us this morning not to do that, not to do that, not to allow our pride, our own sense of our own innate goodness to obscure what God wants us to learn. So with that being said, I ask that you turn to Judges chapter 11. And we are going to be looking at a center portion from it. Please stand. We're going to be reading verses 29 through 40. Judges 
11, 29 through 40. And my wife said that I should make a disclaimer. If I say Gideon, I mean Jephthah. I was, I confused, I wrote it, I wrote it down. I kept typing Gideon, Gideon, Gideon. And you know if I'm typing it, I'm, I might be apt to say it. So if I say Gideon, don't be confused. Find and replace with Jephthah, all right? So eleven twenty nine through 40, this is the word of the Lord. Now the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and he said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Eor to the entrance of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abel-Kerim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah. I'm sorry, rather, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, go. So he sent her away for two months and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which she had made. And she had no relations with a man Thus, it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us humility to hear from you. So often our pride when we are confronted with something that rubs us the wrong way causes us to want to stop our ears. And so we pray that as we approach your holy word, you would give us humility, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that the words of my mouth will be faithful to your word, to what you want us to learn. And may we be a people that loves your truth and lives by it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There are a couple things that before we get into a later portion of this sermon, there are a couple things that I would like to address right at the outset. The first of those things is whether or not Jephthah actually intended to vow a human sacrifice. That's the first thing I want to consider with you. The second thing is whether he actually did as he had vowed and sacrificed his daughter. 
In our scripture reading, we did read the passage where he, he makes this vow. And then we read about what happened, follows after that. And so we need to consider right away whether he intended the vow to be a human sacrifice, one, and two, whether he actually carried out what he said he was going to do. And I want to do this at the outset because these two uh, answers are going to uh, affect the way that we read the rest of this chapter. And I want to do this at the outset because these views are both put forward as ways of interpreting our text, or rather there are views on whether he offered her as a sacrifice and whether he intended a human sacrifice. And because this account of his daughter, Jephthah's daughter, is at the very center of the story of Jephthah, we, we're really taking the salami and leaving the bread of the sandwich here. Jephthah, the story of Jephthah really starts in chapter 10 and goes into 11 and then ends in 12. So we're taking a center section. This is central to the author's uh, purpose in describing Jephthah's life, the story about him and his daughter. And so how we answer these questions has a real bearing on the applications that we're going to draw from Jephthah. That's why I want to deal with them. So first, when Jephthah made this vow, when Jephthah was looking down at the armies that he was about ready to face and made that vow to God, did he intend to offer a human sacrifice? Though it is troubling, there are a few indicators in the text that make it clear that He was intending a human sacrifice rather than some sort of thank offering or some sort of first fruits like an animal or grain or or bird or produce. At various times in the Bible, there, there are many times in Scripture where people offer up offerings of thanksgiving to God and they use all those various things, a pigeon, an animal, a grain. You think about Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, yeah, and them offering up their first fruits. First, it is unlikely that homes at this time had animals inside of them. Jephthah says, whatever greets me coming out the door of my house. And even if they did, they wouldn't be the ones first logically running out to meet Jephthah. You think about Jephthah, he was a mighty warrior. He's coming back from a victory. Do you not imagine the type of anticipation that his family would be having as they awaited his return? You think about the story of the prodigal son and how in that story the father is standing guard outside the house in pure anticipation of seeing that son come home. And then you apply that to a wartime and can you imagine that Jephthah's thinking that it's going to be old Yeller that comes bounding out of the house to, to greet him? No, I don't, think, I don't think that's it. Second, if an animal were meant in Jephthah's vow, the, the noun in Hebrew, we don't see this, but the Hebrew noun would have been in a different form, appropriate for a neuter object like an animal, but it is not. And the third thing is that if Jephthah had promised God an animal, if he had vowed to give God an animal sacrifice or some sort of other sacrifice when he returned home from war. When his daughter came out through the doors, he wouldn't have considered the promise to have been binding with regard to her. If he vowed something to God thinking in the context of an animal, when it's a human, it, it would, he wouldn't have considered that binding, and yet he does. Right up front, we need to look at the passage, we need to be honest and admit that any, any honest reading 
of this passage we read has to admit that Jephthah vowed to sacrifice whatever came through the doorway to greet him, and he was intending to take a human life. In some perverse, wrong, sinful attempt to pay God back for delivering a victory to him. Now, regarding whether he actually sacrificed his daughter, some have read his daughter's lament that she would never marry and suggested that all Jephthah vowed was that she would be condemned to perpetual virginity. The text does say that he did to her as he had vowed and she had no relations with a man. Though this interpretation is much more palatable to accept than the idea that he actually killed his daughter, it is not the straightforward reading of the text. You have to strain pretty hard at the passage to come away with this as its meaning because it's not what the text most clearly suggests. Secondly, the daughter's request for a two-day, two-month reprieve from his sentence being carried out makes no sense unless Jephthah did literally sacrifice her when she returned. If she was waiting for, per, uh, waiting for her perpetual virginity, she would have been able to do that throughout the rest of life. It doesn't make sense. Why is he saying take these two months to do this and then come back? The reality is that Jephthah did promise to make a human sacrifice to God if God gave him the victory. And he expected it to be a servant or someone else, but not but not his only child. And for as wicked as that vow was, Jephthah was true to his word. He made a commitment to the Lord, and in our passage, we see that he didn't go back on it. And so this morning, with, with this in mind, this, this, that these two things, that he was intending a human sacrifice and that he actually did go through with that human sacrifice, with these things in mind, I want to speak to us about the idea of truth in the tragedy of Jephthah's life. I've titled this sermon, Truth and Tragedy. Like I said at the outset, it is not a faithful reading of the text to condemn Jephthah to hell in our minds because of the awful sin that he committed. It is also not faithful to somehow pretty up what he did because it's an embarrassment to us. We must see in this text the sinfulness of Jephthah as well as the root of faith that God declares in the New Testament. It is truth, truth, that is at the center of both the tragic vow and the root of his faith. It is truth that is at the center of his tragic vow and the root of Jephthah's faith. And so this morning I want to explore those two things. And there are two main angles that I want to consider this truth from this morning. The first is from the angle of Jephthah and Israel's failure to understand who God was, their failure to chase down and know the truth. That's the first angle. And the second is from the angle of Jephthah's commitment to the truth, his own truth, his word, his promise in his vow to the Lord. So just, just say that again so we keep these two things straight. The first is going to be from the angle. We're going to consider truth from the angle of Israel and Jephthah's failure to know the truth about God, about what he desires, about his nature. And the second is from the angle of Jephthah's commitment to do what he said he would do, which is to live truthfully. The first thing we need to realize <clears throat> 
as we approach Jephthah is this. When Jephthah came onto the scene, Israel had cast the truth of God far from them. This has been an overarching pattern in the book of Judges, and so <clears throat> at this point, it's no surprise to you. Right? This, all, all through the book of Judges, we've been seeing this pattern, and the pattern tends to be like that of a downward spiral. We, we talked about that in the first couple weeks together. Things don't just go from better to bad. Things go from bad to worse. Israel is in a downward spiral in their rejection of God. They're pushing him away and of their embrace of the things that God had commanded them to keep, uh, to keep away from. I want to just read just a few verses from chapter 10, the, the, the chapter that we're going over this morning, because it sets some direct context for Jephthah. 10 verse 6 says, the sons of Israel, now this is after Abimelech, all right, this is after Abimelech, God sends a couple of good judges and saves Israel once again, but then after those two good judges that we aren't covering in this series, they go down again. Chapter 10 verse 6 says, the sons of Israel did again evil in the sight of the Lord, serving the Baal and the Ashtoreth and the gods of Ammon and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the sons of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and didn't serve him. Now notice, Israel isn't just now worshiping Baal, although that would be bad enough. At the beginning of this book, we, we were told they turned away and started worshiping Baal. And I'm, that's horrible, that's terrible, but now, 11 chapters in, they're not just worshiping Baal. They're not just going after Baal and Baal Bareth like we read a couple of chapters ago. They're going after all the nations of all the, all the gods of all the nations that surrounded them. Notice that they were serving the gods of all the nations that were afflicting them and placing them in bondage. That's crazy. It's craziness. We've spent the last... 10 weeks talking about how Israel has been at war with these nations. Which nations? The nations that they're, they're serving the gods of. And we're told that they've gone after and embraced all these gods. In chapter 10, verse 7, it says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of Ammon. And the Philistines and Ammon afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year, for eight, that year, and for 18 years, they afflicted all the sons of Israel. Remember at the beginning of the book, Israel's lack of faith had resulted in them not conquering the full extent of the land that God had given to them. Do you remember that? That was the consequence. They got a smaller yard, essentially, Right? That's not the case anymore. Things have progressed, and it's going down. Now, instead of having a, a land dispute and having a yard that's a little smaller than what you intended, the words that are used to describe what Israel is going through are affliction and being crushed. I don't know about you, but those two things sound pretty, pretty awful to me. When was the last time you were crushed by someone else? This is the estate that Israel is in. The people are being afflicted and crushed. To our point this morning, 
God had told them what is true. God had given these people the truth. How to live in the land that he was going to give them and how he would bless them as they lived in obedience to him. But what we're confronted with, though, is the fact that they have turned aside from what God has said, from what is true, and they have pursued what is false. They have chased after lies. You think about what we've just read. Israel is chasing after these false gods because they think that they're going to get some sort of good out of it. All they've ever gotten through the entirety of the book is bad, is suffering, is pain when they chased after the gods of the other nations. Has there been one time in the history of Israel during the judges that we've been studying where they chase after false gods and they're rewarded by it? No. No. They're chasing after lies. They've abandoned the truth of what God has clearly told them. They're giving themselves to these false gods. They're chasing after pleasures that are false. They don't get any pleasure from the things they're doing. They're chasing after alliances that are false. They set up all these alliances and they start intermarrying because they think that it's going to do something good for them and it never does. It's gone from that land dispute to being afflicted and crushed. We're going to read in future weeks even how this progresses further. They're chasing after alliances that are false. They never end up being friendly. They consistently end in bondage and strife with the nations that they're trying to buddy up next, next to. And so as God's anger burned as a result of their harlotry against him, and as they were afflicted and crushed, they start to think, once again, wow, maybe we need to change something. Verse 10, it says, so they cried out to the Lord, and they said, we've sinned against you. We've forsaken our God and served the Baals. God said, did I not deliver you from Egypt and from the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and also the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Manites who oppressed you? You cried out to me and I delivered them from your hands. Yet you have forsaken me and you've served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to those gods which you have chosen. Let them help you in the time of your distress. Now, if you didn't notice, we were just told that the Israelites served the gods of seven different nations. And God's response back to them when they cry out for help, he says, cry out to those other guys. Didn't I, didn't I already save you? Didn't I already deliver you from all those other nations? There were seven of them. There were seven of them. God is point, making a point that his deliverance and mercy has been sevenfold, yet they persist in serving the gods of those nations that enslave them. And God is saying that he has had enough of their sevenfold rejection and rebellion against the truth. This, right here, is where Israel is. They have embraced what is false and pushed away the truth. You think about what is the truth? You know, the, the Shema in Israel, that the Lord is one. Not that the Lord is many, that they can worship him through all these other lower gods. The Lord is one. You think about the truth of his commandments which he had given to their forefather and leader, Moses. The commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land 
of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That is truth. And what had they done with it? They had shoved it. They had buried it. They have turned their head away from it. They had ignored it. I want to turn now from Israel, and this being the context of Israel, to Jephthah. And though Jephthah is a judge, one of the things I want to point out is that his rise to leadership comes in a different manner than that of the other judges that we've read about thus far. Whereas at other times, we're told that the nation cried out to God, and so in response, the Lord raised up for them a judge, there is no such segue with Jephthah. This is one of the textual differences, again, intended by the author. Instead, chapter 10 ends with the enemies of Israel gathering together to continue their oppression on Israel, and chapter 11 then picks up right with the story of Jephthah. And we didn't read it. We, we started a little bit down in the chapter. But I want to read to you, if you have your Bible, you look at chapter 11, verse 1. Jephthah comes onto the scene. But it doesn't say the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. It says this. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior. But he was the son of a harlot, son of a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Jephthah's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and they said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Now we start to get a little bit of a picture of of this man, of his life. His upbringing reminds me, maybe it reminds you too, of Joseph, despised by his brothers and sold into slavery. But, While Joseph's brothers were jealous of their father's favor, Jephthah's brothers despised him because he was illegitimate. He was the son of a prostitute. He was a living reminder to them of their father's shame and sin. And being selfish brothers, they said, he will share no part of our inheritance with us. They would not stand for him inheriting anything from them. And so probably at a young age, we don't know, they drove him out. And so he came from, to say the least, a very dysfunctional family. In the next verse, we learn what direction that he he took after being driven out. This is all unique to Jephthah. We, We haven't learned this sort of thing about some of the other judges. He was pushed out of his family because he was the son of a harlot. Next, unlike Joseph, who was a picture of faithfulness and upright character, we learn this about Jephthah. Jephthah attracted to himself a band of worthless fellows and they went out with him. Different translations use, the NASB uses fellows, other translations use the word outlaws or robbers. And they went out with him and the implication is, why are they going out with him? They're going out with him to do worthless things in accordance with their character. Jephthah seems to have been in some sort of organized crime, a kind of underworld boss. He was a complete outcast and a criminal from a broken home, essentially. Now, we need to have a clear view of this, of what kind of things had been going on in Israel and of what sort of guy Jephthah was as we consider his vow and his sacrifice. His background matters. 
the background of Israel at this point in time, matters. If we would have read the entirety of chapter 11 together, we would have read that back at home, Jephthah's brothers, while he's out with his band of worthless fellows, his brothers back at home come under the threat of an attack from the kings of the sons of Ammon. And they're desperate, and they need help. And their outcast brother-in-law was a mighty warrior, and he did have with him a band of vagabond outcasts who were used to fighting and violence. And so what we're told is his brothers from back at home went out to him with a proposition. And they asked him to help them lead a charge against the enemy, the kings of Ammon. They asked him to lead. But being a shrewd and a cunning man, Jephthah doesn't just say yes. He negotiates and says that he won't simply lead, but if they're willing to have him rule over them, if they're willing to have him be their head, he will lead the charge. He will be their chief in battle if he will be the chief in life. They have a deal. They negotiate, and they say, the Lord is the witness. They give their word that they will allow him to be their head, so he agrees. After being named their ruler, his first attempt at dealing with the enemy is through, again, strategic negotiation, just like he had just done with his brothers. He appeals to the kings of Ammon at various levels, but in verse 28 of chapter 11, we're told that the king of Ammon disregarded his message. So while he had success negotiating with his brothers, he doesn't find success with the king of Ammon. Strategic negotiation isn't going to work. War is inevitable. And all of this, Israel's history in the context of them, Jephthah's younger life, being an outcast from his own home, being a rabble-rouser with these worthless fellows, all of this coming into power over against the brothers that had cast him out, all of this preps the text for the fateful vow that we read in verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, and he passed on through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Now remember, sons of Ammon, he's going to war with their king. So right at the brink of war, he made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And Jephthah crossed over, fought against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into their hand. Listen, consider, how could Jephthah have done such a thing? How could Jephthah have made such a vow to the Lord? What was he thinking? What was going through his mind? Was he daft? Why did, did he not know that human sacrifice was wrong? Of course he knew it was wrong. The sanctity of life is something that's innate. Even Cain knew when he struck down his brother Abel that he had done something wrong, that's why he hid from God. One of the things that had separated Israel from the pagan nations around it was God's clear prohibition against human sacrifice. Though he did demand sacrifices, he had told his people back in Deuteronomy 
that human sacrifice was, one, detestable, and two, something that he hated. Why did Jephthah make such a foolish and sinful vow? Did he think that God was going to be pleased by such a thing? That's kind of like a kid saying, Dad, can I take the car on my date Friday night? I'll wreck it for you. Is that logical? Making a human sacrifice at all was an abomination against God. But Jephthah made this vow thinking that God would be pleased by it, and here's why. And listen, listen to this. He had become desensitized to God's truth. God had said human sacrifice is an abomination and it is something that I hate and it is something that the pagans do, but don't you do it. God had created life and said that it was sanctified. And yet Jephthah made this vow because he had been desensitized by what God had said because of all the influences that were around him. He and the other Israelites had been so influenced by pagan culture that he actually thought God would be honored by, making him, by him making a human sacrifice. He thought that he was leveraging God's favor by vowing to do something that was abominable. Had he cherished God's truth, he would have remembered God's warning from before from right before they entered the land. This is from Deuteronomy. This is in fact where God says human sacrifice is an abomination. 12, verse 28 through 32. I'll read some of it. Be careful to listen to all the words I've commanded you, is what God said. When you go in, cut off the nations which are before you. Beware that you are not ensnared to follow them. Beware that you not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods that, we, that I may also do likewise? He says, be careful that you don't say, how do these nations serve their gods so that you don't, by your inquisitiveness, start to follow in. Have we all done that? We actually end up in sin because of curiosity. You know, curiosity kills the cat type of thing. He says, beware. Don't even, don't even start to to ask questions about, oh, why do they do this? It's a little different from what I do. Don't do it. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. This is what God said before the people entered the promised land. Here is the lesson from Jephthah's vow. We need to pursue and know God's truth so that we may relate to him as he commands rather than by how we think he would want us to relate to him. For Jephthah, the truth of God had gotten blurry. It had been mixed with all sorts of ideas because the truth had not been meditated on. It had not been cherished. Their views, Israel's views of who God was and what he wanted from them was more affected by the pagan culture that they were living in the midst of than it was by the first five books of the scripture who described who God is and his character and his will. Jephthah had made his foolish, sinful vow because he lost sight of God's truth. 
who God was, who he said he was. And this is due to two things primarily. He was influenced by the people, the culture he lived around, and he didn't seek the truth of God. Those two things are related. And so I asked myself, and I want to ask all of you this morning, because we already asked the question, how on earth could have he made such a foolish, rash, sinful, ungodly vow? And we've said it was because of all the things that were around him and how those things distorted the truth of God. So now I want to ask you, what are you taking in? What is your intake? This past week, I had the joy of plumbing in my house. And I was doing some work at the main line where it comes in off the street. And I cut the copper and all this crud. I turned on the line just a little bit to try and do some work. And all this just junk came out the line. And you think, man, this is going into our faucets, right? I don't want to be drinking this stuff. And I look and, and it's all the old fixtures are just corroded with nasty garbage, clogging the line, lowering water pressure. The reality is, is that when you've got bad stuff coming in, nastiness, it's going to either get into your mouth or it's going to stop. A, I also this week had the privilege of take, trying to use a shower where the shower head had so much junk in it from the line that no water came through the shower head. So I had to take the head off. It's going to affect you. If there's bad stuff coming in, it's going to affect you. If there's bad junk in the water line, it's going to get into you or it's going to cause you to not have water. We've all heard garbage in, garbage out. And that is what we see with Jephthah in the midst of something he was actually thinking would honor God. He had let garbage get in, and we see it come out in his vow. What is your intake? What sort of things are influencing you? Do you think that you're influenced by things that are walking in line with what is true, or are the things that you are influenced by walking out of line with what is true? Everything in this world is either walking in line with the truth, or it is divergent from that truth. Do you understand that? Every single thing is either walking in line with God, or it is walking counter to God. And some things that aren't Christian do walk in line with God. He is given common grace. There are many things that walk in line with his word. So when I'm not just saying it has to all be Christian, but everything in this world is either in harmony, walking in line with what is true, or it is not. What sorts of things are you taking in? What sort of influence in your life is just the simple everyday stuff, the, the music, the entertainment, the relationships that you maintain, the philosophies that you enjoy and that you live your life by, the news that you watch, you might say that you're able to indulge in things that may not be true without being harmed by them. And I'd say to you that our passage disagrees with that. It's a long, slippery slope, and as the whole book of Ju Judges attests, it's a downward spiral. Where we've arrived at today, we wouldn't have arrived at in chapter 1. But little concessions along the way, little nods lead you down and in. And it takes you to a bad spot. It's striking that Jephthah made his vow without realizing 
that it flew in the face of what God actually desired. Ideas about God and what God wanted had so been influenced by the things around him and the pagan worship around him that he didn't even realize it. He made a vow to God with integrity, thinking that it would be right. He didn't realize that he had been influenced. You might be asking, do you expect me, Nathan, to live outside the world? No, I don't. We are to be in the world and not of it, though. Time and time and time again. God's people are called to be holy. And what does holy mean? It means to be set apart. It means to be different. Not only was Israel called to be a peculiar, particular people in all sorts of ways through the law, through circumcision, through food, through marriage, their set-apartness affected every area of life. It's not just them, though. We also are said to be exiles and strangers. That's First Peter. We're to be in the earth, but not of the earth. We want to think that we can maintain this position of being in, but not of, in a way that still allows us to engage with many things, entertainment, social trends, financial decisions, that are not in line with God's truth. We all do. We all want to say, yes, I can be in the world, not of it, but still engage with many, many things that do not walk in line with God's truth. And this passage about Jephthah and his tragic vow and his sacrifice of his daughter helps us see the tragedy of that sort of thinking. Do we even recognize that much of what we are steeped in in life is at enmity with God? As I already said, everything in life is either walking in line with truth or it is not. Do we recognize all around us there are things that are out of sync with the truth of God? You're obviously repulsed by sins that are <laughs> gross and, and way out there, on the margins. We all would say, oh, yes, to, you know, we, we, we're, we're repulsed by pro-abortion movement or by things having to do with sexuality in our world, but does that make every other supposedly less evil influence and strain of thought okay to partake in? I do think that as we often think as long as we stay away from the margins, along from, uh, away from both ends, that we're not being influenced in bad directions. And that is not the case. If you don't look out and see around you all the ways in which things are in conflict with the truth of Scripture, with God's truth, with who God is, then you are, are being influenced by them. If you can't see how they are divergent, it's because it's normal to you. And that means you're being influenced. I've already said, I've already asked you what your intake is. But the reality of that question is that it can go in a positive direction as well, not just a negative one. So my positive encouragement to you is to seek God where he is to be found. And he's found chiefly in his word. If Jephthah would have known what the word of God had said, he would not have made the vow. If he knew what God had said in Deuteronomy, that this was an abomination and he hated it, why would if he said, God, if you grant me the victory, I'll do this for you? 
He wouldn't have. Are you pursuing God's truth through the faithful and consistent study of his word? Many of you are young and just starting out in life. Many of you are getting married and starting families. If you try to get off on your own impulses without diligently and consistently seeking the truth of God, you are going to make many mistakes that you could have avoided. So learn from Jephthah. Over and over again, God promises that he will reveal himself to those that seek him, that he is a rewarder of those that seek him, that if you seek me, you will find me, and you will search, if you search for me with all of your heart. In this tragedy, we first see that Jephthah failed big time to understand the God who is truth because he was so influenced by the lies that were around him and he didn't know the scripture well. But circling back to where we were at the very beginning, to Hebrews' commendation of Jephthah, I want to end by considering Jephthah's commitment to truth in his vow. It's clear that though Jephthah vowed something sinful and foolish, he was truthful to his word, wasn't he? He did what he was promised that he would do, even at his great expense. And I know that to say his great expense is, is sort of horrific, not to mention the expense of his daughter. We're told twice, though, in the text that we read that this was his only child. Being an illegitimate son, we have to imagine how pained he was when he, that daughter ran out the door and he said, alas, my daughter, you are as one who troubles me when he realized that his vow was going to implicate him to kill his daughter, to end his line forever, this daughter whom he loved. Obviously, I'm not speaking to the, the pain of his daughter. I'm not even addressing that. It's, we see her faith, though, as she encourages her father to stay true to what he had vowed rather than to break his word to the Lord. And listen here. Listen. There is something very noteworthy in his truthfulness, Jephthah kept his word. Now, this is probably upsetting to some of you. You ask me, shouldn't have he broken his vow rather than sacrifice his daughter? Isn't there a time and a place where you realize you, that you've said something foolish and you should humbly break your commitment? Well, I do think there are passages in Scripture that there are times where that is to be done, and I could point out a few to you. The first is when David vows to slay Nabal and his household because of Nabal's insult, his unwillingness to help David. But David changes his tune when he meets Abigail, Nabal's wife. Another example from the New Testament would be the Pharisees uh, when Jesus addresses them and teaches that a man who has vowed his money to God, we talked about this, I think, this past year in our series on Matthew, at the expense of his parents, when, when people give money to God, to the church, at the expense of helping their parents, should repent. Jesus is saying that those who have vowed their money to the temple should actually take the money they vowed to the temple and give it to God. They should break their vow rather than letting their parents go neglected. But, 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 though there are, are those times, we must remember what had happened time after time after time with the people of Israel in the time of the judges. They promised something to God, and then they lied. They were not committed to the truth 
to God and to what he had told them. They were not committed to speaking what was true. They always said, oh, yeah, 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 we'll change. Oh, yeah, 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 we repent. Oh, yeah, 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 we, will, we won't go after those other gods anymore. But when push came to shove, they always did. They would say the right thing initially, but they would not abide by it for long before they broke covenant with the Lord once again. That is the history of Judges. And that is where we see Jephthah's faith. Yes, it was shrouded in tragedy and in sin. And yes, it was an unimaginably horrible ordeal. But Jephthah displayed faith in God by keeping his vow, even when it hurt worse than death itself as a father. You can't imagine such a thing. Once again, in the face of Jephthah's sacrifice, remember that he was a man of faith. And he did heed the message of God concerning faithfulness, whatever confusion accompanied it in his life. What he did in sacrificing his daughter is a thing that all of Scripture condemns. Why he did what he did in order to keep his word to the Lord is a thing that all of Scripture commends. We need to remember that. But before we get out, bent all out of shape, talking about how he should have broken his vow, how what he did was worse, I want us to pause and I want us to bring the searchlight of scrutiny onto ourselves. While we want to condemn Jephthah for keeping the vow that was wrong, we often do not keep the vows to God that we've made that are right. That's the reality. We don't keep the good vows that we've made. We vow that we're going, we tell God, we confess, I haven't prayed. I need to be a man of prayer. I need to be a woman of prayer. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to make it a new habit. Then we make excuses for it. We're too busy. It's a busy day. My kids are, need me. This, that, the other thing. We say that we're going to discipline our children and to fashion our home, to build our home in a certain way. We don't do it. We break our word. We say to our spouses when we get married that we're going to lay our lives down for them. And yet we don't. We break those vows. We, we vow that we're going to fight a sin wholeheartedly. And then we have a little trip up and it just leads to ca catastrophic failure once again because we aren't serious in our resolve. In the Old Testament and in the New, God shows himself as the God who never goes back on his word. The Bible says, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and it will not be fulfilled, says the prophet? He who calls you is faithful and he will do it, is what the Apostle Paul says. And where God calls men and women to, res uh, to responsibility among his people, he expects the same quality in them. In the New Testament, as well as the Old, the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness, which is walking in line with what is true. Who shall dwell on the Lord's holy hill? He who swears to his own hurt and who does not change his mind. There was much that Jephthah needed to learn about the faith of the true God, of faith in the true God. But the dreadfulness of the vow for which he is most remembered points us, by contrast, to the vital thing 
the thing that he had grasped and the thing that the author of Hebrews latches onto when he makes the Holy Spirit-inspired decision to write Jephthah's name alongside the prophets and David. And that was being true to what he had said to a holy God. He held true to the truth that he had attained. And as Paul says, when we do that, that is a firm stepping stone toward God showing us deeper truths that we don't see clearly yet. And so Jephthah, even in his horrible sin, challenges us to not only embrace the truth about God, but to live truthfully ourselves. There are two things in this passage that, I mean, uh, pardon me, there are things in this passage that probably don't still square well with you right now. There are some things in this passage that I hope have some strange tension in your heart as you walk away. And I hope that this is the case, but only because that means that we're actually taking the message of Jephthah seriously and trying to deal with it honestly. There are two things that I want us to take away from the tragedy of Jephthah's vow, and that is we must seek the truth about God and keep ourselves separate from the influences of the world, which are always seeking to distort and to pervert and to warp and to just tamper slightly with God's truth. And we must live truthfully by what we say we are going to do, recognizing that it is God's character to do so. And he calls us to imitate him. Be a man of truth. Be a woman of truth. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would expose the areas of our lives in our minds and hearts in this time and the hours and days to come. You expose the areas of our minds and lives where we aren't living with you and your truth being our main influence. We confess that we allow the world to pollute our thoughts and not just thoughts of things that pertain to this life but thoughts about things that pertain to you who you are, the way you operate, what you want from us, or how little you want from us, Father, sometimes. I pray that we would be men that are committed to truth, women that are committed to truth, and that we would imitate you in being truthful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.